Okay, we're going to read from Luke chapter 11. It's um, on page 1528 in the Brown Bibles. Up to now we've been working on a series um, in Matthew 13, but we finished that last week. I wanted to start something new um, just over this sort of few weeks around Christmas and New Year. Um, Just a very short series on the Lord's Prayer. And I've chosen to to work from Luke's version, which is slightly shorter and um, more just succinct and punchy. So I'm going to read to you from Luke 11.1. And we'll read down to verse 8. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And say to him, Friend, let me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer it from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. One of the reasons why I've chosen to look at this whole theme of prayer for a few weeks is because in starting something new, in starting... Um, a new church plant together as we're engaged in this new thing. I think there's probably nothing more important than that from the very beginning we lay a foundation that prayer is the means by which we we seek to attain God's favor and blessing on what we do. I think that the Bible makes it really plain, really clear actually, that um, very little is achieved without prayer, that prayer is um, the only way that God has ordained for his favor to, to, to be poured out upon us. So I think about one of the famous verses in 2 Chronicles 7, where Solomon's just dedicated the temple, and then um, God starts to speak back. He responds to Solomon. And uh, one of the things he says is that when, when, when basically I punish you Israelites for all the wrong things that you're, you're likely to do, you will do, you undoubtedly are going to walk into, when I start to punish you, He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I think it's one of the verses that ought to be a kind of battle cry, as it were, for for Christians in the West, where so much has been given up and forgotten and let go of in terms of what healthy Christianity ought to be that we recover prayer as the, and this humility that he describes, that you humble yourself and, and seek God earnestly as the way of seeing God revive his church and uh, seeking his favor. You remember also in James 4, very simply, he just says, you ask and do not, he says actually further back, you do not have because you do not ask. There's something very simple there in that connection, isn't there? So we all agree that prayer is undoubtedly... Um, the most important thing that we could be doing together. But we also know that it's the hardest thing. Um, Certainly it's difficult sometimes to pray together, but it's even harder, I find, to pray alone. 
And I think the disciples would agree. You notice how, it's, how it began here. That just after Jesus has finished praying, you know, they're kind of watching, intrigued, and they're itching to know. And they say, Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. And so he, he obliges and begins to teach them. It's not just the disciples, though. I think um, whenever you pick up a book on prayer or hear about um, you know, the great teachers through history, Christian teachers through history, they all agree that prayer is difficult. There's not, I've never read anyone who said um, prayer is the easiest part of the Christian life. They all seem to invariably say it's the hardest thing you do. Um, I think there's lots of reasons for that. But I'm, I just read the other day that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a minister over at Westminster Chapel for a long time in the middle of the last century, very famous. He re- wrote lots and lots of books which have gone worldwide in, their, um, in being published and sold. But he never wrote a book on prayer. And he said so because of his own, his own sense of personal inadequacy in prayer. And that's all the more surprising because his wife said of him after he died that although a lot of people thought of him as a teacher... Um, he said that actually they didn't they don't know him unless they realised that he was first and foremost a man of prayer and then an evangelist. That's what she said. A man of prayer, an evangelist, and then teaching was kind of somewhere down the line in terms of his gifts. So she knew because she saw him up close. He was a man of prayer, and yet he still felt that sense of inadequacy, such that, such that he wasn't willing to publish a book on the subject. Um, Tim Keller, who just released a book on prayer a couple of weeks ago opens it by saying that that 10 years ago, he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s now, 10 years ago, just after the uh, twin, uh, soon after the Twin Towers had fallen in in New York, um, he began on a new journey of seeking to learn how to pray better because he said he just didn't get prayer. This is a guy who's been in ministry for decades and he's just very honestly saying, it was not my strength. I think he's seen a lot of change in his life. So when we come to the subject, I think we're, we're touching on something which is intimidating and challenging, and yet which God gives us the grace to achieve. And one of the ways is that Jesus taught us this incredibly simple but pregnant prayer in the Lord's Prayer. So I want us to unpack it. But I don't think that today we're going to get much further than just the first word. I think we have to stop there, where you see the comma in your Bibles, where Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. I think it's probably the most important word in the prayer because unless you get what's meant by Father, when you begin to pray to God as your Father, then the whole of your prayer is is set off on the wrong direction. It's the foundation, really, as we'll discover, of what real prayer is, what real Christian prayer is. Um, J.I. Packer wrote a very famous book called Knowing God, which is... um, Again, just been read by many, many people. And in it, he has a chapter or a section about the whole thing of knowing God as Father. And he says these striking words. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers... And his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. A bit further on he says that Father is the Christian name for God. That's pretty challenging stuff. That unless you understand what it means that God is your Father, you haven't really understood the essence of of Christianity. 
And that has to become the first step, the ground of your, your life of prayer and your relating to God. So nothing's more important. I want to just unpack that from a few different angles. I want to unpack it from the angle of God as your, your maker, from God as your saviour, secondly, and lastly, from the angle of what it means to be joined to Christ as your be hidden in Christ. So that's roughly the where we're going today. Beginning then with this, this truth that's there in the Bible, that God is your maker, he's your designer. In Luke's Gospel, much earlier on, um, when, when he's recounting the genealogy of Jesus, he goes through all the people that are in Jesus' uh, ancestry, and he finally ends up with Adam. And when he gets to Adam, he calls, he's, he's, he goes, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, until he gets to Adam, and he says, Adam, the son of God. And one of the truths that you see in the scriptures, one of the foundational truths of what humanity is, is that we are all God's children at some level. Um, there's a sense in which this is why Christians count human life to be so precious, why we are against abortion and euthanasia and the men taking other men's lives, um, unless in some very, very limited uh, context, because we are actually owned, our lives are owned by the living God. We are his children. And this has a massive implication for, for how you approach God as a father, just as his creature, it has massive implications because, first of all, that he takes a very special interest in you if you are made by him. You can look at Psalm 139 and see some amazing language which just expresses this. He says in verses 2 to 4, he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. That the God who made you and constructed you, every molecule of your being, there's no part of your thinking process that he doesn't understand better than you do. He says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Our lack of self-knowledge is often a frustration. I don't always understand what's going on in my heart, certainly. And that can be a real challenge in prayer. That when you come to God, you don't know how to express your own desires, do you? And what the psalmist is saying is that God actually knows your impulses deeper and more, with more accuracy than you know yourself. For a word is on your tongue, he knows it. It's echoed by Jesus, isn't it? When he says in Matthew 6 that God knows, he knows what desires are in our hearts even before we've articulated them. It's there in Matthew 6 verse 8. He says that the Father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need to pray before you ask him because he made you, because he constructed you. He understands your makeup. But it actually goes a little bit further and a bit deeper than that. God doesn't only take a special interest in you. He also, I, it goes on in that psalm to teach us, he actually, there's, there's an admiration and a pleasure in who we are. You remember in in creation, when God looked at his creation, he said it's good. I think that when we, um, when we look at our own lives, I, I certainly feel a sense of frustration sometimes with myself. And I guess probably all of us identify with this, that there are things that we wish we could change or that we were 
that we were more whole in certain ways, or that we were more, had more able, had more gifts, that we had a slightly different personality or makeup or ability to connect with people or intelligence or humor or all kinds of things that, or looks or whatever. There are all kinds of things that we wish we could change about ourselves at times. But the psalmist tells us that, he says, you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What he's telling us is that God intended you the the way you are. And that the way you are is how he intended you. And also he's saying that there's a purpose for the way he made you. And all of this then reflects back in how you come to God in prayer. That God doesn't look at you and think um, that you're inadequate in some way. Because he actually put you together the way you are. And he constructed you also for purpose. So that his plans and purposes are going to be worked out in your life. Because he's designed you for the life that you're living. This understanding changes entirely the way that we approach God as we come to him in prayer. Because we're coming like children before a father who has knitted us together and cares about us and knows us better than we know ourselves. In an earlier psalm, in Psalm 103, it also says that he, in talking about the whole thing of us sinning, God's grace and forgiveness, it says that he remembers that we are dust. How does he remember it? Well, because he formed us from the dust. God looks at us and he sees our weaknesses and he has compassion on us and mercy towards us because he's a creator and he knows that we're just creatures. That's the first element that I think we need to put in here, our understanding of what it means that God is Father. He's our maker. But it goes much deeper and further than that. When we begin to think about what the New Testament teaches about our being saved. And we can break it down like this. That firstly, he chose you. The Bible tells us that you're saved if indeed you know God. If you've been brought into his family, you are saved because he began to utter your name from before you were ever made. In the beginning of Ephesians, he puts it in this way, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And suddenly, the idea that God is your creator takes on a whole new focus and sharpness when we understand that his saving purposes. You know, there's a whole lot of people in the world who, who don't know God as, as Father in, in the intimate sense of what it means to be saved because they haven't been called in this way. They haven't heard the voice of God beckoning, joint, bringing them into the kingdom. But when you've heard his voice, it's because he singled you out. I think the first question a Christian asks when they read these kinds of verses and say, well, why did God choose me? Why did he call me? Why has he singled me out is the question, Why? And the strange thing about the Bible is that it, it doesn't tell us any of the reasons why he chooses certain people over others. 
If you could pin it down to something in your life that made you a more acceptable choice. You know, you could picture the, the kids on the, on the playground at school when they're about to play football. We play football every break at school. And every break we would start with new teams when the two captains would choose their teams. And so we'd line up. And I was usually halfway through the, the selections. I wasn't really the best and nowhere near actually. And, but I wasn't the worst. There were some of those kids who just couldn't kick the ball straight in a straight line. So I was always choose roughly halfway. And you know that where you come in the selection is down to how good you are, right? How, how many gifts you've got on the football pitch, whether you're, you're able. And if we start to think about salvation that way, then what it does is it, it takes away, it diminishes the grace of God and says that God's chosen you because you're special in certain ways, perhaps because you're, you're more moral or more gifted or whatever. Actually, the Bible tells us that God's choice is... It is not based on any of those criteria. It has nothing to do with that. So firstly, that we can't boast then when we're chosen. But also, it means that you can't then mess up the choice. If you were, let's go back to the football analogy. If you were chosen because you are particularly good at scoring goals, the minute you pick up an injury, let's say you're walking with a crutch one day, you're not chosen because... You're no good on the, on the pitch anymore. You're going to be the last one chosen if, if indeed you play at all. If God's choice of us was based on something in us in that sense, then it would always be dependent upon us, wouldn't it? But because God's choice is based in some mysterious way in his own secret purposes and will, which are not revealed to us, and for reasons we can't identify or understand... We know that his love for us is unconditional and unchanging. We know he didn't choose us because we're qualified. Which means he's not going to take our choice away the minute you feel unqualified or disqualified. He just chose you because he chose you. He just loves you because he loves you. And this is an exceptional truth when you begin to grasp it. Because it means as we've been singing and as we've been praying... That when we come to God as Father and say these words, Father, we know that he's never going to say, I don't know you, go away from me. The minute you come to know God as your Father and are joined to Christ and are saved and are part of the family of God, he is your Father irreversibly because he called you, not because you called him. Because he went in search of you and chose you by name and selected you out from all the people in the world. That's the picture, isn't it, in Luke 15, when Jesus tells us the parables of the the lost coin and the lost sheep. He says that it's like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 of them are in the sheepfold, but one of them's gone lost. And God goes off and he looks for that sheep and he brings the sheep back. That sheep is a stupid sheep, a wayward sheep, and it's in spite of all its stupidity and waywardness that God still goes after the sheep and brings him back. So that sheep always knows who its shepherd is. It's the one who goes looking for him, not the other way around. And that's what it means when we come to God as Father. It means that he called us and chose us. And then there's another layer to this, what the New Testament calls adoption. We talked about God as Father in creation, but what it means to call God our Father in salvation is really captured by this word adoption. That God brings you into his family as a child within within his family. 
I know that we're all children of God in this very general creation sense, but the New Testament also says that when you're outside of the church, when you're outside of the family of God, it gives language like this. It says that you're a son of disobedience or a child of wrath. So you want to know what kind of family you belong to without God. He says you belong to the family called disobedience. You belong to the family called wrath. It means that God is, counts you as his enemy when you're not in his family. It sounds harsh until you realize that we're completely worthy of God's anger against us because we have never worshipped him in the way that he deserves. But all of that flips around in the Bible when it says in Ephesians 2.4 that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He brings us from death, from a place of God counting us as his enemy into a whole new place where he calls us his friend. He says in verse 13 of Ephesians 2 that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To be brought near, he means in a spiritual sense that you were in exile, you were cast out from God's presence. You could not have said the Lord's Prayer. You couldn't have got past that first word because he was not your father in this sense. But the minute that God takes you in and he brings you near, suddenly the word father takes on a whole new dimension of significance and meaning for you because he is your father. Because he loves you. He goes on a little bit further in Ephesians 2 and puts it this way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Friends, as I've been saying, that is an irrevocable membership. The minute you're in the family, he's no more going to send you away or disown you than an earthly father would want to disown his son or daughter. And when we begin to understand what this means in experience, not just in, in a kind of head sense, you suddenly realize that this is, this is, this is really the heart of it all. We know that the gospel begins with this idea that God, God wipes away our sins. But it's not just for the sake of calling you a clean, pure person, but it's for the sake of knowing you in a relationship. In the same book that I was reading from earlier, when J.I. Packer is talking about adoption, he says that we've got these two words, haven't we? We've got this word justification, which means to, to God to cleanse you from your sin. But he says adoption is even better than justification. Let me just read to you what he says. Just bear with me. He says, Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. That's the reality. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins. That's the primary thing, that God justifies us, he cleanses us, he wipes away the guilt that's on our conscience, that's gnawing at us, and he gives us a fresh start. That's what it means to be saved. But he says there's something else here. He says, this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. Because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Adoption is a family idea. 
conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Why is it greater to know God in this way, Father, and not just as the judge who's who's wiped your record clean? The answer is you begin to discover is that his fatherly care is upon his children. He loves you. I know you don't feel lovable all of the time. I know I don't. There are days when I feel so frustrated with myself. Why is it so hard to summon up the desire to be in God's presence and to pray to him? Why is it hard sometimes to worship? Why is it that you come to church some days and you've really got to drag yourself? Why is it that you do the same sins time and time again? Why is it that you feel that you're running from God when when really he's calling you to himself? Why is it that we're such conflicted creatures? When we touch on this reality of what it means that God cares for you, that he loves you as a father, it it changes everything about your walk with him. To know that you sit under the grace of God as as a daddy loves his baby. And that baby might frustrate him some days, do wrong, rebel, all kinds of things, but his heart melts for you and he loves you and delights in you. And the New Testament opens up facets of what this love looks like. We could start with one of the things that might feel more negative, and it's that God loving you as a father means that sometimes he'll discipline you. It teaches us quite clearly that because God's aim in your life is your holiness, he'll use whatever means he wants as a daddy disciplining his children to make sure that the sin is, is chased out of your life. And one of the ways he does it is through, is through suffering. And you think, well, that sounds pretty, pretty harsh. What kind of love is this? But actually, the, the New Testament in Hebrews 12 flips it around and says, it's only a loving father who would do that. And you've got to draw a careful distinction in your mind here. that We're not talking here about punishment. When God allows his children to experience hardship in order to expose their sin and allow them to to get rid of it and repent of it and recognize it for the wickedness that it is. It's not punishment. We know that because God poured out, he drained his anger down to the last drop when he poured it all upon Jesus at the cross. There was nothing left. And he he can never hold that kind of anger towards us again. But it is the loving discipline of a father who with steady, self-controlled determination will deal with you because he loves you. He puts it well in Hebrews 12 when he says it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But it also means that if he loves you in this way, that he provides for you. Now remember, we're talking about prayer here. I'm wanting you to understand all the dimensions of what it means to call God Father when you approach him in prayer. And one of the ways is provision. You know, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul's talking about the problem of, of widows in the church and how 
they ought to be provided for. And one of the provisos he says is that the church shouldn't give them any money if they've got family who can take care of them. Because it's the family's job to look after each other. And then he says in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So a father who's unwilling to take care of his children, his wife, his parents, um, the people that he is responsible for, he says, you've denied the faith. And the watching world is looking at us and seeing uh, if we as Christians are, are any different. And what they ought to see is that, is that Christian fathers honor their family by taking care of them and providing for them. Now listen, the reason I draw your attention to that is because if it's true of earthly fathers... How much more is it true of God the Father that he's not going to look at his children and neglect them and, and allow them to go without the things they need? There comes, there'll come times in your life when you, you begin to, to wonder. Some of you have yet to have to pay for yourself in life because you've been taken care of by loving parents or by, even by the government. Some of you have yet to get your first job or to try and purchase a house, or to try and earn enough money to feed your family, or whatever. And at those points, you'll be tempted to doubt. You'll be tempted to wonder, is God really a father to me at this moment, when, look, my friends have got a house and a car and all this stuff, and I can barely put, um, I can barely make it through the month with enough money without borrowing on the credit card or whatever. The Bible's full of promises that if God is a father, then he cares for us like any dad ought to care for his children. An earthly dad, Paul says, isn't worth being called a Christian if he can't look after his children. How much more God the Father? Isn't that what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6? When he says, don't be anxious. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is what adoption means. He brings you into his family and then he makes you his responsibility. It also means that he protects you. An earthly father would go to any length to make sure that their, their child comes to no harm at the hands of others. But the Bible all, all the way through tells us that that's how God treats his children. He says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I think that we could experience all these aspects of the fatherhood of God and still be, to some extent, to some degree, unaware of his, his nearness. But when we go back to the passage in Luke 11, where he, he talks about coming to God in prayer, he ends the section from verse 9 onwards, these verses I didn't read to you. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Listen, this is where I think the word father gets its sharpest edge for us in our experience. What's Jesus saying here? He could have, he could have told us this little analogy about an earthly father and then applied it to, to provision. You know, if an earthly father is going to give their son a fish, then surely God's going to put food on your table. But he doesn't. He makes an interesting connection. He says, if an earthly father is good in that way, taking care of his children, he says, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is he saying here? And I think he's saying this. That to know God as Father is not just to know Him in an abstract way as your provider who you've never met, like some kind of benevolent um, person who's underwriting your life, not just as your protector who, who sends squadrons of angels from a distance to look after you. He says, no, to know God as Father is to know His presence in your life. He says, He'll give you his presence, his Holy Spirit. I think that to be able to call God Father in the adoption, New Testament sense of the word, has to mean that you in some way are going to walk into increasing levels of the enjoyment of the presence of God in your life. That your prayer life ought to take on new dimensions as you encounter God in new and fresh ways. That your worship, when you sing worship, or when you go to your job and worship God with your labor, or where you, when you take care of your family and honor God through your glory, uh, giving glory to Him in every aspect of your life as you begin to orient your life towards God in worship, that He, as your Father, will draw near to you in increasing measure in your Christian walk. It ought to be the experience, this is what I'm saying, of the Christian that they know what it means to call God Father in new and deeper ways as they walk further in that truth. And if you have come to a stagnant place, a place where your knowledge of God hasn't really changed or grown for years perhaps, then maybe what you need to do is take this prayer on your lips in a fresh way and say, Father... And take what Jesus is saying here seriously where he says, God will not withhold his Holy Spirit from you. God wants you to know him in, in that experiential way. He wants to come and make his habitation in your life with greater power, greater force, greater reality and for you to know his love. This is the spirit who in Romans 8 cries out, witnesses with our spirit that we are sons of God. So that we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The more you know of God's presence in your life, it's not just about power. It's not just about the miraculous. It's not just about being able to witness and tell people about Christ. It's about knowing the fatherhood of God. And your cold heart growing warmer. Your stony heart becoming softer and more malleable and wanting to obey him because he's your daddy and you hate to upset him. Your disgust with sin will grow and grow because your delight in him will grow and grow. This is what it means to say that God saved you, adopted you and cares for you. This is why Pak is saying this is, this is the deepest, the most profound truth that we can encounter in this life.
This is what makes Christianity Christianity. You won't find this anywhere else. I want to tell you one more dimension of God's fatherhood before we close. And it will just help shed light on all that we've said so far. And it has to do with this idea that we're hidden in the sun. And here's what I mean. We know that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, at the very beginning of his ministry, and he's lifted out of the water by John the Baptist, and the Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove, and then God's voice bellows out from the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son, um, whom I love. We see God's warm, radiant delight upon Jesus. He is the apple of God's eye. And you might think, okay, well, where does that leave us? Because if Jesus is God's son, we don't really compare too well with him, do we? But the Bible tells us this amazing, profound truth, what it means to be saved. It doesn't just mean to come into the family of God as a a brother alongside Jesus or a sister alongside Jesus, though it does mean that. That to be saved is actually to be hidden inside Christ in some mysterious spiritual way. That's how it's put in Colossians 3 when it says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Romans 6, Paul talks about us having died with Christ on the cross, being buried with him in in his burial and then raised with him. Now I know that we're touching on things which are very hard to understand. But this is what Jesus meant when he talked about abiding in him, that he's the vine and we're the branches and we abide in him. He says that in some mysterious spiritual sense, we are hidden in Christ. Now, why is that important and why is it relevant to what we're saying here? I always think one of the best pictures of what this means is in in the book of Genesis, when there are two sons of a father called Isaac, and he has an older son called Esau, who's the hunter, the guy, he's the manly one. He's hairy, he's ruddy, he goes out, he kills an animal, he skins it, he makes stew, and everyone loves him. He's the boisterous kind of out there guy. And then there's another son called Jacob, who's more effeminate. He hangs out with his mum, he, um, he stays at home, he's not really into hunting. And Isaac, who's nearing the end of his life, and he's, his eyes grow dim, um, he's, he's going blind, he... He thinks it's about time he has to pronounce his blessing on his older son Esau because it's time that Esau received the blessing. It was a, a moment that, that's marked in a number of the patriarchs' lives that they're blessed by their fathers. And Isaac's wife, Rebecca, overhears Isaac talking about this in his intention. He sends Esau out. Esau's going to go and hunt, bring back a, an animal, make a stew, and present the stew to his dad and then receive the blessing from Isaac. And Rebecca begins to whisper to Jacob. She says, Listen, I'll prepare dinner. You go and pretend to be Esau. And he says, well, how can I do that? Esau's hairy. And um, my father's soon going to discover that I'm just pretending. Even though he can't see, he'll know it's me, Jacob. And so they, they come up with this little scheme. He, he puts on Jacob's clothing, uh, Esau's clothing. And they, they take the skin from a goat, a young goat, and put it on his hands. Probably just up his forearms like this. So when he goes into his father's room, and his father's on the bed, can't see who it is. He says, who's this? And he says, Jacob says, it's Esau. And he's basically said, I've come to receive your blessing. And Isaac's a little bit confused. And so he, he, says, he, he says, come here so that I may you know, touch you. And, and as he comes near, he, 
It's like he, he brings him close and he sniffs him and he can smell Esau's jacket. And then he touches his hands and he can feel the furry hair of Esau. That guy must have been very hairy. <laughs> We're talking, you know, Middle Eastern standards here of hairy man. And he, he, he feels the kind of the hair on his arms. And he says, and he thinks, okay, it must be Esau. It doesn't sound like him, but it must be Esau. And so he pronounces this one-time blessing that can't be repeated for the other son, for Esau. And Jacob gets the blessing. Now I think that that is one of the, the pictures of what, what it means to be hidden in Christ. Christ is the beloved son. He's the favoured older brother, as it were. But when we are joined to Christ, it's like we get clothed with his garment and his hair on our arms. So that when we go into the Father, yes, you're unworthy. I'm unworthy. There's nothing about me that is acceptable enough to go into God's presence and call him Father. But when I go into God's presence, it's like I go in and I am wearing Jesus' jacket. And God brings you in close and he, he smells you. And he touches the back of your hand. And he says, yep, this is Jesus. And he begins to bless you. Now, of course, you could paint it as though God were the senile older man, slightly confused in this situation. It's not like that at all, because the New Testament says that this was God's plan all along. And that this is his provision for us. Jesus is the lifeboat, and he has put you on the lifeboat. He has joined you with Christ. But this changes entirely the way that you approach God in prayer when, with Christ, you say, Father. When you read your New Testament and you read the Gospels and you look at the prayers of Jesus, it seems as though every time, without exception, he calls God Father. And by teaching you to pray this way, he's saying, look, come alongside me and pray with me and learn the way that I pray. This is how I relate to God and this is how you now get to relate to God as Father. If God were your boss or your judge, if he were your boss, your relationship with him would be entirely performance-based. You might have a good day, great. You can come to him confident, head up. You might have a bad day and you're afraid. He might terminate your contract there and then. But in revealing to us that God is now our Father, he's revealing to us the unconditional love of, of, of the Father towards you. And of his acceptance, that when you come to him to pray, you may have had the worst day of your life, you may have had the worst week of your life, you may have been walking away from God for years. He wants you back. He wants you to come. The thing about a dad, of course, is that If you make a mess of your life, your boss isn't going to hardly cry about it, is he? The relationship will end. But when God as your father sees you make a mess, he doesn't treat you like an indifferent, cold boss. He treats you like a father does with his child. It means that he's hurt more than a boss is. He wants you to change. He wants the best for you. He's made the provision for you. And so friends, as we come to him, we know that we're coming to God 
a God who's for us, a God who wants you in his presence, that has to be the ground and foundation of the way you pray. Or else we can't get past the first line.